Reading the art of fermentation last summer, I salivated at the descriptions of kimchi and miso and root beer made from scratch. And then I went on to read the recipes and realized how much work they entailed. I imagined myself sitting on our back patio at the Parsonage, enjoying a glass of wine I had made from the sweet late season stone fruits that I was devouring all month. And I wondered how quickly could I make a bottle of plum wine? In about a year, it turned out, which was not the answer I was hoping for. I could have sauerkraut in two weeks, but somehow that didn't seem the same. That vision of fruit wine in the backyard on a summer evening stuck with me. And I realized that even if it was too late for this year, what about next? If I worked backward from that imagined evening on the patio, the sun only starting to think about setting at seven, a bottle of something pink and delicious chilling in an ice bucket, back through the months it would rest undisturbed on a shelf in the basement, mellowing, back through a process called racking off the lees, which I would have to learn something about and apparently used six feet of plastic tubing and something called an auto siphon, back through the addition of, of honey water and champagne yeast after straining out the spent fruit, back through the month that that fruit would sit bubbling at the bottom of my two gallon fermentation crock, back through pouring boiling water over pounds of deep purple plums freshly crushed by my now stained hands, all the way back to my next grocery trip when I would find a big bin of plums on sale and I thought if I start now, I might just be ready. Priya Parker in her book, The Art of Gathering writes, the art of gathering begins with purpose. Before we get together for a birthday party or, or even a staff meeting or a family reunion or a church service, we, we should know why we're doing it. At least if we want to have the kind of transformative gathering that Parker's interested in. It's not enough to say we're throwing a party because it's a birthday party because it's someone's birthday. We have to understand that the deeper purposes we're trying to serve. Are we throwing a birthday party as an excuse for our family to get together after months of not seeing each other? Or are we throwing a birthday party to help our child learn how to socialize? Or are we throwing a birthday party because this might be our grandma's last? All of those are birthday parties, but they'll look very different depending on our purpose. Every choice we make about who we invite and what we wear and what we eat and what we do flows from that first decision, flows from figuring out the reason why we're gathering. We are preparing for an Easter party. Hopefully you've got that at this point in the service, but it's not enough to say that we're celebrating Easter because it's Easter. We need a purpose. There are lots of Easter's we could plan. So which will it be? What's our reason for gathering? What's the deeper meaning of our party? What kind of Easter do we want or need this year? 
Maybe it feels strange to ask those kind of questions now. It certainly feels strange to say Easter so much on the first Sunday of Lent or to have a colorful ball of light, a uh, disco ball uh, rotating around on the screen. This week, as I planned the sermon, I found myself walking around our sanctuary as I often do before I write. And I found myself singing, Christ the Lord is risen today, alleluia, which in a lot of churches is a real no-no. You're not supposed to say alleluia for the whole season. Now I've said it twice. But if we're going to be throwing an Easter party in the end, we have to know what kind of Easter it is. We have to think some about Easter now because everything we do now will flow from that answer. What do we need to do? How shall we live? Who do we need to be to be ready for that party? To find your purpose, Parker says, it can help to work backward from your desired outcome. What do you hope will come from gathering? What will be different? How do you imagine things looking and sounding and tasting and feeling because you gathered? How, how will you or your neighbors or the world have changed because you gathered? Once you start to see it, once you catch that vision, you can find your way back. You can figure out your purpose. You can prepare. You can make your plan. But only once you know where you're headed. I think Jesus agrees. Even as he's trying to prepare the disciples for that first Easter. He keeps mentioning it. His death and resurrection. It's happening, ready or not. He peppers it into conversation between other teachings. It's as if to understand anything that is happening now, the first thing they need to understand is what will happen. The outcome, the purpose that it's all headed toward. To understand Jesus's life, they have to start at the resurrection and work backward. Our little snippet of scripture this morning begins as they were coming down the mountain. And there's a lot packed into that little phrase. What has just happened on the mountain is that three of the disciples have witnessed a miracle, actually three miracles. When they got to the summit, Jesus's clothes started to glow dazzling white. And then they started, and then they saw him start talking to Elijah and Moses, ancient heroes of the faith. And then they heard a voice break through the clouds, God's voice calling Jesus beloved child. And now as they are coming down the mountain, bursting with this news, ready to tell the other nine about it, Jesus says, you can't talk about this until after I'm risen from the dead. And it says, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean which is exactly what Jesus wants. He knows that, that if they talk about it now, they would misunderstand what has just happened. He knows they're misunderstanding most of what is happening to them day in and day out since they've started to follow him. They are bound to misunderstand it until they know where it's headed, until they figure out what this rising from the dead could mean. 
Only then will they see what the rest of it was for, what was being prepared, what it all meant, the purpose of it. They won't understand until they see the kind of celebration Jesus has planned. A friend wrote this week about how hard it is to feel connected to his church with everything on Zoom. I know you have no idea what that feels like, but he was feeling it even more on, on Ash Wednesday, a service that he usually loves. But this year he, he was struggling with the idea of being in Lent for the next seven weeks. He wrote, I've been living in Lent for over a year now. Who knows when Easter will arrive? And I wrote back, April 4th, it's happening which in hindsight may have seemed a little flip. But that's not how I meant it. I meant it to be reassuring. I wasn't trying to be sarcastic. I was trying to be insistent, defiant, purposeful, because his words, his words had given me a sense of purpose for this particular Easter. They had helped me understand the kind of party I needed to be planning in this season, of all the Easter parties I could throw, which one I want to be throwing on April 4th, 2021. Because we've all basically been in Lent for a year, and truth be told, we're still going to be in that Lenten place in April. COVID will not be over a month and a half from now. Winter for Chicago will probably not be over a month and a half from now. And I couldn't even get myself to leave out the word probably from that sentence because I'm so exhausted with winter. Our exhaustion will not be over in April. My friend's sense of disconnection will not be over. My own sense of disconnection. Zoom church will not be over in April or Zoom work or Zoom everything. All of the things that make life frustrating and sad and lonely and ugly and strange right now, they're all still going to be here in April, especially early April. But we're planning a party for April 4th. It's happening. It will be Easter ready or not. What do we hope will come out of that gathering? How do you imagine things will look and sound and taste and feel this Easter? How will we and our neighbors and the world have changed because we gather on Easter? I got part of my answer this week. I want to plan an Easter that can make my friend feel that Easter has arrived. If only for a day, if only for an hour, I want our Easter to be one that can break through a year's worth of Lent, that can reinterpret it, that can make sense of all that we've experienced. I want, I, I need a defiant Easter that shows up even when it doesn't feel like Easter, that shows up in the face of exhaustion, that shows up in the face of what passes for spring in Chicago, that shows up in the face of all our dread and fear and frustration and Easter that shows up in the face of all of this death the way Easter always has.
I need an Easter that stubbornly insists on itself, that marks the day on the calendar and just refuses to reschedule. Recently, we sent out a church newsletter. If you're not on that list, send us your address. And I was in charge of writing a little blurb about Easter this year. And if you haven't read it, I'll let you in on a secret. It says almost nothing. Because as I wrote it, I realized there was almost nothing to say. We just don't know what it will look like or feel like, what we'll be able to do, what we should plan for. And yet, even after I wrote it, I felt like it was important to leave it in, to hold a place, to, to say to you and to myself, save the date, April 4, it's happening. While I was writing this sermon, the Holy Spirit sent me an email from the Chicago Botanical Gardens with the subject line, can you free leave? It was about the Scandinavian practice of getting outside no matter the weather. Open air living with blatant disregard to the conditions, ready or not. It's the spirit that made Rochelle and I insist to Nola on Monday that we were taking a family walk around the block and sure enough, we took the half hour or so to get all of us dressed in four layers. And we made it down to Berteau and then turned back around. <laughs> and we were glad that we did it. The one thing of substance I did say in that newsletter article is that we are hoping, we're dreaming if it feels safe enough to do something in person on Easter which means something outside, which means something cold, a free leave Easter. The image I have is trumpets in the snow, but hopefully not really snow, maybe not really trumpets. The image I have is, is us, at least a few of us, bundled up, masked up, spread out, maybe with thermoses, maybe with a fire, maybe with electronics struggling to function at that temperature, but together, insistent, defiant, stubborn about our need to celebrate. Stubborn about the end of winter and Lent. Stubborn, insistent on the power of life over death. Always and especially now. That is the party that I'm planning for. I wish it were ready right now. I wish we were sitting actually on my back patio together with no masks on a summer evening, drinking better wine than I'm capable of making. But I'd settle for just seeing your eyes on a chilly April morning. I don't know if it will be the way I imagine Easter rarely is, as the disciples soon find out. But I do know that whatever happens, it's the only thing that will make sense of all of this. Or I should say, whatever happens, what has already happened is the only thing that makes sense of all of this. The victory of life over death again and again. But we're not supposed to talk about that yet. This is Lent 
40 days to figure out how to get there. Down to 36 already, plus Sundays, puts us at 42. We'll call it 42 days to plan, to prepare, to ask ourselves, what could this rising from the dead mean? To the world, to our neighbors, to you and me. What do we need to do? How shall we live who would we need to be this Lent to be ready to party on April 4th? Let's work backward from that place. Let's work backward from the place where we have the courage and the faith and the stubbornness to proclaim in a cold, dead world, he is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen.